Hey everyone, back again. Today I'm going to talk about Hannah Arendt's idea or approach to totalitarianism from her text The Origins of Totalitarianism. But before jumping into that, hi, I'm David. I try to explain philosophical concepts and ideas in a way to make them accessible to you. So if you're new here, like, share, subscribe, you'll see videos I release every single week, sometimes twice a week. You can go check out some of my 200 and some episodes I already have up if you're interested in that. If you aren't new here and you haven't already done those things, you know, like, share, subscribe, tell your friends who knows they might get a kick out of it. You can help me out monetarily via Patreon or PayPal, but obviously no pressure. If you found this on YouTube, you're going to be able to find it anywhere where you get podcasts. If you just want the podcast form, if you found this in podcast form, you're going to be able to find this on YouTube where there's a video, video of this, if you're interested in that at all. Yeah, if you want to follow me anywhere other than here, you can find me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy or on Twitter at David Guineo, but you know, and there are links for that. Do whatever you want. So yeah, let's jump into this idea of totalitarianism, which comes from the origins of totalitarianism. Now, this Saturday is going to mark the first of a series that I'm going to do on this entire text. So what I'm going to give you here is just a little bit of a snapshot of a 500-page book, which I'm going to present in a lot more detail over six weeks, six different episodes. It's going to give you the whole story of that book. So here, I'm just going to focus on some of the characteristics of totalitarianism that Arendt really focuses on and describe how, you know, given so many of the things that are going on today, how Arendt's approach to totalitarianism and to war is very relevant to what we're seeing today with Russia, Ukraine, also what we saw just recently with all the freedom convoys around, uh, around the world, which might hear this and say, well, how, how does this relate to totalitarianism? Well, I'll tell you exactly why, but just, just give me a minute. Now, in its simplest form, totalitarianism is a political system that governs masses. That is, it doesn't govern classes, it doesn't govern individuals, it governs a mass. And that mass can only come about if other distinctive qualities between people have been erased, like class. So no longer, at least when she was describing this at the time, between the period between World War I and World War II in Europe, no longer were there such strict delineations between lower classes and upper classes. Something happened in that period, and really the history goes back much further, but you got to listen to all my episodes to really get that feel of what went on there. But something happened between World War I and World War II when the when people began to lose their affiliation with various classes, with other kinds of identities, and began to instead associate with this thing called the nation in a very homogenous way. So you'd have upper class people mingling with lower class people, and they found some solace, they found a kind of new community around this idea of the nation. And I think that this probably jives with what we might all know about totalitarianism, at least how we've understood it historically, be it uh, Stalinist totalitarianism or in Nazi Germany, that totalitarianism, there is a heavy emphasis upon nationhood and nationality. But Arendt is very clear that there's actually something else going on here. And totalitarianism doesn't just come about when the idea of the nation gets proffered up. It has to come at the expense of something. And that's something, well, it's actually many things, but in this case, it's specifically at the expense of the idea of the state. So before this time, really coming up around the year 1800, 
when there are all these burgeoning ideas about human equality and you know freedom, the nation state was emerging as a, an institution that was going to defend these rights for people, defend people's liberties, defend people's freedom of speech, defend people's uh, ab ability to organize and to rally. Over time though, the equilibrium between the idea of the nation, which is kind of a nebulous ephemeral thing that would be associated with a kind of identity, a national identity, and the state, which is a more legislative, uh, physical body, you know, you think of government institutions and everything like that, there needed to be a delicate balance between the two under the nation state or within the nation state. Now what happened between World War I and World War II, according to Arendt, is that the idea of the nation began to supersede that of the state. So what, what we saw was the nation eclipse the state. So there was a complete and utter renunciation of everything to do with the state, which meant a renunciation of party, of politics, of government, of all of its institutions, except for the police and the army, in favor of a more uh, representative body that would represent the nation. Now at the time as well, there were these emerging ideas about race and how race was something that could be determined on the basis of one's, uh, certainly on one's skin, one's heritage, one's nation. And so a certain people became associated with that national identity. Now in Nazi Germany, I think that we're all pretty well familiar that this, this became a white-centered state, an ethno-state, designed specifically for the interests of white Christian, German white Christian people, at the expense of those people who were not considered pure-blooded white Germans. Jewish people, for example, who were a race that were considered outside of that paradigm. Roma people, disabled people, gay people, all of these other people were justified to belong outside of this nation and were therefore considered to be a threat. Now at the time as well, there were all of these percolating ideas about minority rights, the rights of people who didn't have governmental representation with other states. And minority rights were largely enforced by the state apparatus, not the national apparatus, which is a nebulous kind of ephemeral thing. So in the eye of the state, anyone could have equality. Anyone could be a citizen, could have a national identity. but on the national side, on the side of those people that really stood with this pure-blooded nationalist idea, the state was just lending out freedom, lending out rights to whoever it wanted, when these people on the nation's side were saying to themselves, my life sucks. Why are these people getting to enjoy all of these benefits when I can barely you know, make ends meet? You know, and this was exacerbated following World War I when Europe was in turmoil, Germany, the German people were suffering, and there was a very long uh, history that culminated into this point all across Europe of anti-Semitism. And so the Jewish people were targeted especially uh, powerfully in order to create an enemy that could serve as a necessary antithesis against which to establish a strong, or at least seemingly strong, community bonds to oppose that threat. But any community that is founded upon that kind of hate, that is founded upon a direct antagonism with another group, is not a community that is very tenable. 
it's not gonna last. It's not designed for longevity. It's just an immediate reaction against something else. So it is a system that is really predicated upon hatred and fear in a lot of ways. It has to maintain the illusion that there are these enemies on the horizon that are threatening this order, at least this apparent order that actually is quite weak. But in order to keep this community alive, as weak as it is, totalitarianism always needs to invigorate the sense that there are these enemies on the horizon. Now this also motivates a desire to expand and to extend itself into other nations and into other places. And this is a really, um, this harkens back to a longer history of imperialism through Europe at, you know, leading up to this point, where so many nations were just embracing this idea of expansion for expansion's sake. They were just going to all of these different countries, these different parts of the world, exploiting it, uh, enslaving people, committing atrocities. And there, there became a point when this logic had to turn in on itself. And various nations that didn't have the ability to go overseas for myriad reasons, they didn't have access to oceans like Germany, uh, they couldn't just travel everywhere super easily, began to realize or began to satiate this desire for imperialism against its own people and against the neighboring countries. So it wanted to extend itself outward in order to challenge the threats that they were perceiving everywhere. Now, it's particularly important to consider why Jewish people were selected in such a powerful way by Nazi Germany as being primary targets. And it can't erase, there are other groups as well, like disabled people and gay people, Roma people, but by, you know, by far Jewish people were the most selected here. Because anti-Semitism in Europe very much believed and put forward the idea that Jewish people were trying to organize a global order. They were trying to establish global rule all over the world. And what that meant was that that conspiracy theory would serve as a justification for Germany or other nations' desires to oppose that threat by instilling their own global rule. So they said, Jewish people are trying to take over the world. The only way to combat that is for us to take over the world. And this is exactly what totalitarianism tries to do. It wants to expand everywhere for expansion's sake. It uses narratives of fear to bring people together and then uses that fear to justify expanding and bringing other people into the fold, either by force or by some weak persuasion. And in all its efforts, it tries to do away with any traditional structures associated with the state, like parties, like politics, everything like that. And it claims to be a system that isn't so rigid as the state. It's always going to try and embrace movement, always going to try and embrace change, which for a population that feels itself to have been ignored by a rigid state, to hear that this new party, this new system is going to be entirely malleable, it's always going to adapt and change, provides a very seductive alternative to what people had been experiencing beforehand. And because of that, it's always trying to do away with any kind of structure, always trying to embrace instead constant movement, constant change, hence an entire administrative system that is totally inefficient, totally uh, ill-equipped to actually handle people's needs and wants to actually help people, but it is only geared towards 
tearing institutions down, tearing down structures. Now there's you know so many applications to uh, RN's approach here, but the one that I, or a few of them that I uh, think about the most was what I was seeing with the Freedom Convoy in Canada as it was really uh, gearing up and as it extended on for weeks, um, just people sitting there. And what I was hearing a lot of was that these protesters were real Canadians fighting for real Canada. And hearing that raised some alarm bells for me, being pretty familiar with this text, because the way that Arendt describes totalitarianism as being uh, an embracement of nationalism at the expense of the state really resonated with me with how people were talking about this freedom convoy, where people were identifying with this real Canadian national identity, but they didn't do this when it came down to nurses losing their job or teachers or even police officers, which is interesting. It was when truckers were losing their jobs, which they weren't, but the threat was there, at least the idea was there, that they began to think that Canadian national identity was under threat. So then they staged a demonstration against the state by going to parliament and, you know, creating havoc there and really disrupting people's lives. And this was a symbolic gesture that is in no way congruent to what happened in uh, all throughout Europe in the 20th century. Like, it's not the same thing. However, it's important, at least my concern here is to draw your attention to how these types of things begin. And they begin when we start to attach to very nebulous qualities like national identity, like true Canadianness. And, you know, then we can interrogate why these people and why now? Why truckers? Why do they garner this kind of support and not nurses or teachers? And, you know, we can speculate all day as to why that's the case, but we have to be very uh, critical about why certain groups get this attention and others do not. So my only concern here is to bring our attention to these kind of embers of a possible thing that could get much worse. And it's important we keep our eye on it because, you know, we're just reading history here and we're looking at what had happened and we have to be very careful that it doesn't repeat itself. Obviously, we want to do everything we can to make sure it doesn't repeat itself. And at the same time, as I'm recording this, there's the ongoing uh, assault of Ukraine by Russia. And of course, uh, NATO's response, of course, NATO being an institution that has itself inflicted so many harms across the globe, it's, it, you know, it's possible to denounce both of them, to recognize that both are extremely violent and need to be challenged. And it's just at this moment, right now, the task should be to uh, save the people of Ukraine. But this, what seems to be going on with Russia, where there, it doesn't seem to follow any kind of clear guided path. It seems to be only to realize a kind of manifest destiny that like Russia is somehow, um, it is their right. It is their Russian right to go into Ukraine because Ukraine is really just an extension of Russia. And so therefore we have to embrace this Russian identity by extending it to these other sovereign nations. And it's just very scary stuff when we consider Arendt and how she describes uh, all of these totalitarian movements in the 20th century. And again, I'm not saying that these things are the exact same. There are lots of other things to consider, but it's important that we be very vigilant and be very mindful of what had happened historically and read people like Arendt to get a sense 
of exactly how to avoid these things from arriving at something like the concentration camps once again, or in full-blown you know, anti-Semitism or any other kind of discrimination. And I should mention one more thing, is that totalitarianism is going to shift the ground of the very, is going to upset the very terrain of what it means to know something. Totalitarianism is going to make us think that we don't know what is going on. We don't know what is true. We don't know what is false. We are going to be put in a situation where we'll just submit to any side that you know seems to be in power that week which is scary because it just completely overhauls what it, what we know about our world. And it's important to keep these things on the back burner, especially now when we engage with things like uh, what's going on in Russia, with Ukraine, that we know exactly how misinformation is spreading, how it affects our knowledge of the world, what's going on around us. And it's important as well, like in response to these crises, what we're seeing going on right now, be very vigilant against falling prey to these illusions, falling prey to misinformation that is going to dupe us and really make people susceptible to very violent ideas, very violent ideologies. And yeah, that's a very quick snapshot of this text. And like I said, tune in this Saturday and you'll see uh, the whole thing, or at least one part of the whole thing. You gotta wait a few weeks for them all to come out. And yeah, you'll know this book like the back of your hand. Uh, and yeah, if there's anything I got wrong, I'd love to hear about it. Anything I excluded, I'd love to hear about it. And I'll catch you next time. Take care.